All right, all right, all right. Hey, uh, go ahead and take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel. All right, so just take it kind of right in the middle of your Bible, take a little bit of a right turn, or get to Psalms, Proverbs, take a uh, right turn, and we'll be in Daniel 3 in a few minutes. Uh, let me just do this and take an opportunity to say thank you for joining us, if you're joining us online uh, today. Anything we can do for you, how we can serve you, any way we can pray for you, uh, please use the comment section below, whether it's on Facebook or online, uh, on our webcast, or whether it's on on YouTube, we would uh, we would love to know how we can serve you. We've been able to see people everywhere from Brevard to Belgium. So thank you very much for uh, tuning in today. Also, uh, for you WNC folks, uh, especially the WNC BC folks, uh, let me just remind you of this. We just restarted kind of the second edition of 828 Strong. And uh, during the summer, you guys stepped up. And just from that merchandise, we were able to give somewhere around $150,000 worth of gift cards to servers who had been furloughed, uh, let go, hours cut back. Great job this summer. And now there's a bunch of new stuff out there. 100% of those things go to uh, Mana Food Bank. Obviously, right now, there's a lot of food insecurity. Actually, Mana has gone up like 60-something percent in the needs just around Western North Carolina. A lot of times we say, you know what? I can't help everybody. I can't help everybody. Uh, listen, just because you can't can't help everybody doesn't mean you can't help one. And just one little bit of merchandise, one bit of merchandise can, because with manna, the way they do stuff is $1 can have four meals, all right? $1, four meals, all right? I went to Texas Tech and so my math isn't really good, but all that tells me is, you know what? One piece of merchandise can actually provide like a hundred meals, all right? So go ahead, go to 828strong.com. Uh, we've got, uh, so there's some new stuff there. I know it's going to be cold this weekend or going to be cold. It's cold this weekend. So I uh, got sweatshirts you can do as well. So go there and you'll bless somebody else. Plus you'll have some pretty cool stuff. One last thing I forgot to actually mention uh, last time, and that is uh, two of our campuses uh, will, uh, by the end of the year, uh, part of those campuses will be helping being a food distribution center with manna. All right. So uh, we'll kind of give you some more details, but thanks for being a church that serves the community that God put us in. All right. Daniel 3. We're in a series called This Must Be Greater Than That. And uh, if you missed last weekend, I set it up this way. It's based on a story from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor way back during the uh, days of uh, Hitler. And one of the things that happened was uh, he took a friend up on a hill and he said, this must be stronger than that. This must be greater than that. And th this was the seminary where he was training some pastors who didn't have a lot of backbone and didn't have a lot of training. And he was like, listen, I'm training, I'm training these folks so because this, his seminary, must be stronger than that. And he pointed out in the distance where Hitler's planes were taken off and all his troops were marching. And he was like, listen, this must be greater than that. All right. And eventually it was. All right. Hitler's now just a shameful memory. All right. Bonhoeffer's book, Cost of Discipleship, is a worldwide bestseller, but as well, the German church repented. People have been encouraged over and over and over again. So here's what we're doing. We're looking at about five or six vital areas where we as a church uh, globally, where we as a church uh, right here locally, where we as a church individually, what are some vital areas that we got to commit and say, you know what, this has got to be greater than that. And last week we talked about, you know what, love is must be greater than hate. We looked at classic passage out of uh, the Gospel of Luke. And today we're going to go Old Testament and we're going to be talking about the fact that conviction must be stronger than compromise. Now, as soon as I was like, that's the title, that's the title, I thought of that old, very familiar experiment where you put the frog in the, in the 
pot of water that's room temperature and the frog's just happy as can be. This is awesome. This is awesome. And then you just gradually turn the heat up on that frog and that frog will sit there and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And because you turn it up gradually, the frog will not jump out of the pot. The frog will boil itself to death. And it's like, man, that is, is what has happened in some ways to the church in the West. The church in the West in the last 20 years, has, the last generation has lost 20 million young people to the church worldwide. In the West, pre-COVID, in the West, pre-COVID, there was gonna be an estimated 60,000 churches that closed in the next seven years. Again, that was before the pandemic. It is definitely higher than that now. And yet Jesus loves his bride. Jesus is committed to his body. He promises to build it. Great news is, if you look back through American history, you look back through American religious history, some of the greatest awakenings came up out of the darkest times in uh, religious life here in our country. And so uh, the church is his bride, it's his body, it's his plan A. The church is God's hope for the world. It's not the first time God's people have found themselves living in a culture that does not support their belief in God. Hence, Daniel 3. Let me just kind of tell you in the front end, this is one of those classic examples. We tend to think, man, that's like a little bit, that's like a Sunday school story and it's anything but that, all right? So don't think flannel graph, all right? This is about areas of compromise and areas of conviction. And I'm gonna to try to hit three, to, I'm gonna hit three today. And these are gonna be, we've hit all of these before, but there's three from the story, we could hit 10. We're not gonna do a deep dive on all three of them, but what we're gonna do is look at them and then say, okay, I'm gonna make a commitment that my, my convictions have got to be greater than the compromise. Here's the three areas. Let me give you a little foreshadowing. First area we're gonna look at is we've gotta have a conviction about our identity. A second thing, you've gotta have a conviction about what I'm just gonna call the exclusivity of the gospel. And then lastly, it's about adversity. When difficult times come, uh, how do you and I see those differently than the culture around? So, all that being said, let me give you a little bit of background so we can make sure we get to Daniel 3 and we just don't, just, just don't open the Bible and start. So, here's basically the story. 597 BC, there's a king named Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king over Babylon. He conquers Israel and he goes into Israel and he basically conquers it, pillages it, but he takes people back. He takes the best of the best back to Babylon. Babylon is basically modern day Iraq. Now understand, God's people had been in the promised land and they had been disobedient for somewhere in the estimation of 490 years. And God had told them, listen, if you are faithful and if you follow my commands, listen, my hand of protection will be on you. But if you just kind of go off the rails and you do whatever you want to do, I'm going to remove my hand of protection from you. And so after great patience of Almighty God, he removed his hand from them. The king of Babylon comes in and they conquer Israel. Now, Nebuchadnezzar believed in what I'm just going to call subjugation by assimilation. He didn't go in there and wipe everybody out, but he took the best of the best. He took the gifted. He took the ones with the highest EQ. He took the ones with the highest IQ and says, I'm going to take you back to Babylon. I'm going to train you in all the Babylonian culture so that then you can be a leader in my country, even though you are an outsider. Now, right off the bat, this is not the life goal of the people that got taken, all right? That's not their life goal. The question was, how are they going to worship and love God when they don't get the life that they wanted? Now, the four famous people in this story are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I know there's tons of jokes about Shadrach, Meshach, you know what, uh, my shack, your shack, okay, whatever, right? It's Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they gave them Babylonian food, clothes, music, etc. Chapter one in a nutshell, 
They try to assimilate them. Daniel's like, I'm not gonna compromise in this area. In his area, it was about food. And then in chapter two, here's what happens. Chapter two, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream and he brings everybody in and says, hey, tell me what I dreamed and how to interpret it. And they're like, hey, tell us what you dreamed and we'll interpret it. He's like, no, 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 if you all are really good, you can tell me not only what I dreamed, you can tell me what the dream means. And they're like, nobody can do that. He's like, if you don't tell me that, I'm gonna kill all of y'all. And so they're like, oh, there's a guy named Daniel. We've seen kind of God's hand on Daniel. They go get Daniel. Daniel cries out to God, please show me. And then he comes in there. Daniel tells him not only what he dreamed, but he also interprets the dream for Nebuchadnezzar. And because of that, Nebuchadnezzar says, you know what? I'm going to raise you up. So he basically makes Daniel the senior vice president of Babylon. And when he makes him a senior vice president of Babylon, what he say? Hey, can I, can I do anything for you? He says, I got three roommates, all right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why don't you lift them up as well? We'll be a great team. And he does that. That's chapter two. Chapter three. Chapter three, what happens is Nebuchadnezzar builds this massive image. And he builds this image and he says, when the music plays, listen to this. When the music plays, everybody bow down and worship. When the music plays, it's a 90-foot statue. We don't know exactly what the statue was, all right? There's a lot of, I used to think it's it's a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. The text doesn't say that. It's probably some kind of statue of the Babylonian gods. That's probably the best guess. But the whole thing was when the music plays, you've got to bow down and worship or burn. So it's basically bow or burn. And so everybody bows. Somewhere estimation around 300,000 people of all different languages, all different places, because Israel wasn't the only place they'd conquered. So you got all these people all over the place, and it says, when the music plays, you bow. And so they all bow, except three. Now, we don't know where Daniel is at this point. Daniel's big in chapter one and two. He's huge in chapter four on. We don't see anybody in chapter three except Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So everybody bows. They've got the conviction to stand. If you remember, if some of you guys, are ladies have played sports and you got those reversible jerseys, uh, he's like, you know, put your jersey on them on this team. You put another jersey on them on this team. And what they were saying is like, listen, we play for one team, all right? We play for team Jesus. That's the team we play for. And we're not gonna, we're not gonna bow to your God. All that being said, let's go to the text. Here's what it is. Daniel chapter three, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. So here's what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And here's the the, the statement. Here's Here's the question that really is revolving around the whole chapter. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who will do that? So it's, he's kind of like, you ever seen that parent in Walmart and, he, and they count to three? It's like Junior's acting up and Junior's acting up. It's like, I'm gonna count to three. And if you better put that Snickers back by the time I count to three, you're gonna be in big, big trouble. That's kind of what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. He's like, okay, you guys have been told already. And so I'm telling you, I'm giving you one more chance. He repeats the same thing that was happened. When the music plays, you better bow or I'm gonna have to do to you what I'm gonna do to the rest of these people, even though I probably kind of like you a little bit because you're kind of high up in my cabinet. And the question is, who are you gonna put your faith in? 
You're going to put your faith in the invisible God who actually, haha, actually allowed you to be conquered by us? Or are you going to put your faith in a visible king who's right in front of you who can put you in the furnace? That's the question. So let me read the rest of the narrative and then we're going to try to draw some stuff out. Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That is salty is what that is. Like, they're not sassy. They're not disrespectful. They're not obnoxious. They're just like, you know, we don't even have to pray about this. We don't have to pray about it. We don't have to go read a book about it. We don't have to go get a verse about it. We just don't even have to answer you about this because our decision was already made before this challenge was even put there. We've got a conviction. We bow to one God. If this be so, now let me just, let me do a true confession. I had never really paused at verse 17 and 18. They have already this week as a study for this passage, verse 17, but particularly verse 18 is now like my, one of my top 10 Bible verses in the entire Bible. Check what's going on. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able. That's a great thing. Our God is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now that's good. He's saying God is able, God is able, God is able. But verse 18 is just awesome. But if not, our God is able, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let me pause before we kind of get to the rest of the story. Imagine if just you and I, if we saw all of our fiery furnaces, all of our trials, all of our difficulties with this perspective, the perspective that says, God, I know you are able. I know you are able to restore my marriage. I know you're able to heal my cancer. I know you're able to bring back my prodigal, but if not, I'm still going to worship you. But if not, I'm not going to bow down to all the cultural idols. Just think of that perspective. Now let's finish the story out. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. The way they do it back then, they basically had this big old pit and they put a lid over it and they throw people in there. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound. The Bible's trying to say, you know what? Hey, they were bound. He says it about five times. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, i.e. they were really flammable, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's like he got too close to the fire. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound, there it is again, into the burning, fiery furnace. Couple more verses. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, which what you said, true, O king, and here it is. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now we're gonna come back to that, but again, Nebuchadnezzar is not all of a sudden saying, you know what, I understand that's the son of God. He is either, he's acknowledging that, you know what, in that kind of culture, he's like, man, that is something I've never seen before. I don't even have to put words in it. Theologians would say either, either it would be, 
an angel God sent to protect him, or it would be what they call a Christophany or a, uh, uh, a theophany, which basically, a Christophany is a picture, an appearance of a pre-incarnate Christ. That before the manger, before Bethlehem, this is the pre-incarnate Christ there. So we'll, we'll end with that, but here's where I wanna go. When it comes to conviction over conformity, let me hit these three areas. We've gotta have some conviction. Number one, conviction about, gotta have conviction about our identity. Your identity is basically who you see when you look in the mirror. Identity is, you know what, how I see myself. I've been pastoring for like 30 some odd years now. It's just, <laughs> you're like, I thought you were only 29. It's, we start early. I'm just saying, my point is, it's like, I've been doing this for a long, 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 long time. And one of the things that I've discovered is so many of life's struggles, I'm talking about the deep struggles, come from identity issues, not understanding who we are. On the other hand, when we understand who we are in Christ, there is an amazing amount of victory that can, stronghold could have been there for decades, even generations in families, and you understand what Jesus has done and your identity in Christ, that stuff can just like be broken immediately. Uh, one of my, uh, if you think about the movies I've used a bunch of times, but the, the, the Born Identity movies, I mean, that was his basic issue. I think, I mean, I don't know how many there were, five or whatever, but the Born Identity, Born Identity one, they, what was it? It's like, he didn't know who he was. He didn't know who he was. He spends the whole movie, who am I, who am I? It's like this search to figure out who he is. Whenever he figures it out, there's this amazing weight off his shoulders. So here's what happens in this text. Right off the bat in chapter one, the king changes the names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. See, we're all, well, that's how we know them. It's like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's not their Jewish names. That's not their God-given names. That's not the names they got at birth. They changed their names from a Jewish name to a Babylonian name, something probably to do with the moon god. And in the ancient world, the name went to the core of a person's identity. All right, it's, about, it's, it's talking about who they were in God. If you look back to their original names, their, God, their names mean this. Their names mean God is gracious, God is good, and God is my hope. And so every time they would look in there and they would understand their real name, they were reminded, you know what? God is good, God is good. And my identity is tied up in the goodness of God, in the hope of God. That's who I am. At my core, that is who I am. And we've talked about it a ton. But this culture presses in on you and tries to press in on you a label. And they will try to smack a label on you. And you and I almost daily have got to say, you know what? When I look in the mirror, who I am primarily is not what my past says I am or even my parents say I am. It's who Jesus says I am and what he's declared over me. And this has happened down through many cultures, even in World War II, when the Jews were rounded up and placed in concentration camps, they were given numbers instead of their names. Why? Because they were trying to strip from them their identity. And here you get a great example. Daniel and his friends, they discovered, you know what? In being true to my God-given identity, then I, can then I can then bless my culture. So here it is. They're gonna label you. You're gonna be labeled, I'm gonna be labeled, and our, and our drift is always toward those things. So you're gonna be labeled by either your failures or successes. You're gonna be labeled uh, everything from your economic situation to your politics, to your race, to your failures, to your addiction, to your occupation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
And you've got to continue to remind yourself of your God-given identity in Christ. I am not, let me just say it to yourself now, I am not primarily. Now listen, I'm not talking about you don't have to deal with addictions. I'm not saying you don't have to deal with your past. I'm not saying you don't have to go to your job. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying primarily at your root, who you are is not all of that stuff. I am not primarily my past. I'm not my sin. I'm not my job. I'm not my toys. I'm not my marital status. I'm not what's been done to me. I am what Jesus has done for me. I'm not what I do. I'm what Jesus has done. And again, what you gotta be able to say is in Christ, I am a loved son or daughter that has been bought with a price. That is who you are. That's who you are. And so in this case, you have a great example. You've got 300,000 that forgot who they were. And all of a sudden you've got three that God lifts up and says, okay, they remembered who they are. That's their identity. They said, we don't want you to do that. We don't want you to be, we don't want you to be what you were. We want you to be, we want to mold you into. And he's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. So identity number one, second thing would be this. I got to spend a little more time on this. I'm just I don't know, it was a little bit of Baptist in me that was saying, you know, exclusivity because they all had to rhyme and had to, be, uh, had, to, had to match and go together. So identity is one, exclusivity. Now listen to me carefully on this one. This is the one that you're going to hit every, you'll see, you cannot turn on a news program and, and not get this. When Nebuchadnezzar said, I want you to, when the music plays, you bow or you burn, he's not asking people to discard their God. Remember you had people from all different languages, all different areas, all different, all different backgrounds, all different gods. He's not asking them to get rid of their gods. That's not what he's asking them to do. He's like, you can worship your God as long as you want, but when the music plays, you've got to bow to this God. In other words, no problem with your gods as long as you don't say your God is the God. As long as you don't say your God is the God, the exclusive God. And let's just hear today in our culture. We live in a religiously, what you call pluralistic society. And when you say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, you can, you're gonna get some pushback, you understand that? I mean, you can stand up in an award ceremony or you can get a trophy for the Super Bowl and say, I wanna thank God all you want to. But when you start talking about the exclusivity of the gospel and you start talking about absolute truth in the Bible, you are gonna get some pushback from that. And so again, we live in that way. And the unspoken rule in our society is you don't tell somebody else they could be wrong. And if you wanna be a civilized, educated person who is respected, don't say anything that would imply that your belief system is superior to somebody else's belief system. As a matter of fact, you can be sincere in your faith all day long, but don't get too excited and certainly do not try to actually share your faith or convert somebody else. Because here's what will happen is you will be called arrogant, you will be called intolerant, which just real quick, just to kind of get my little soapbox off, I just find it interesting that those that preach tolerance are not tolerant to you if you actually say this is the way, the truth, and the life. A preacher said it this way, our culture has accepted two huge lies. If you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. And lie number two is to love someone, you must agree with everything they believe or do. And that's not true. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go into an extremely pluralistic world. You and I live in an extremely pluralistic country, culture right now. The good news is Christianity was birthed in an extremely pluralistic culture as well. And the whole world changed. The Romans did basically exactly what the Babylonians did when they went in there and they wanted to assimilate a culture. And so here's the idea. Uh, Throughout human history, the fundamental religious question has been this. Are there multiple ways to God? 
I mean, you, you, you put it all the way down. It's like, oh, there's all these different religions. There's really not all these different religions. There's really two. There's two basic ones. Basically, the, 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 another way to put that question is, who can save us? That's the question. That's the question, who can save us? Every religion tries to answer that question, who can save us? And so on one hand, the question is, religion says we can save ourselves, whatever that might be. You know, pray at the wailing wall or obey these commands or make this trip to Mecca or do whatever. That's religion. Christianity is entirely different and says, you know what? The gospel is different because God only can save. God only can save. The gospel teaches that our acceptance with God is not based on anything we do, our moral record, our education, our race, our politics, anything. That God gives salvation is a gift when we repent and receive it that way. Keller puts it this way, and you need to, you need to listen to Keller some, all right? I'm not, I don't agree with Keller about everything, but that dude's, that dude's smart, okay? He's a lot smarter than your pastor. He's a lot smarter than most of the preachers you listen to. Keller puts it the best way. He says, all religions are exclusive, but Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity that there is. In other words, when you believe this, far from making you arrogant and judgmental, it makes you loving and gracious and accepting. This is pretty important for you to understand. Because if you and I understand the gospel, it should not make us arrogant at all. Now, I'm not saying Christians aren't arrogant. There are some of the most arrogant Christians. I mean, you've seen them, all right? I've seen them. At times I've been one, at times you have been one. If you see people who are arrogant with the claims of Christianity, and again, there are a lot of them, that's not, listen to me carefully, that's not because they believe the message too fervently. I want you to hear this. When you see an arrogant Christian it's not because they believe the message of the gospel too fervently. It's because I believe they don't even understand the message at all. Because when you understand, just like we talked about last week, that I was dead in my trespasses and sin, and there was nothing I could bring to God and say, here's my resume, and it was sheer grace that God saved me, then that gives me a humility that looks at other people and say, you know what? God can save them too. God can save And what God did for me, he can do for them. And... Uh, People that, people that are arrogant Christians, you can get, they, they, it's kind of like they, I've heard it called theological BO. That's what they have. They have theological BO. It's like, man, you stink. I, you got your theology seemingly straight, but you stink. And that is uh, exclusivity. You don't have to bow down to that. So here's the one I want to kind of land the plane on, and that's this. So the first one is you got to have a conviction about your identity, who you are in Christ. How's that? Second one is, again, it's about the exclusivity of Christ, and we could go on forever about that. Which, by the way, just so you understand, early, if you go to like Acts 3 and Acts 4, it's not because, it's not because that the apostles and the early disciples, it's not because they privately believed Jesus was the only way. They actually went public, and it's when they went public is when they went, they got pushed back. And if you remember what they said right there in about Acts 4, and they're giving them heat, it's like, stop preaching Jesus, stop preaching Jesus. And that's where they make that classic statement. They're basically saying, listen, you guys are a lot smarter because it was kind of the elite of the day saying, you guys got to stop that. Stop saying Jesus is the only way. And they basically said, listen, here, here's the bottom line. You guys got more degrees than we do. You guys are smarter than we are. You got a higher IQ than we do. I understand all that. But what you got to understand is this guy came up out of the grave. And if we have to pick between degrees on a wall and an empty tomb, we're going with the empty tomb every time. And they got pushback from that. And so the exclusivity of the gospel. And lastly, and the one that's probably the most personal tonight, and that is this, it's, it's adversity. I mean, adversity is not just in this story. It's all over this room. It's all over online. It's adversity. 
Here in the story, they get kidnapped from home. They get taken captive to Babylon. They got a crazy tyrant boss. They're literally going to get thrown into the fire. Let's go back to verse 17 and 18. Verse 17 says, you know what? God's able. Man, God is able. God's able. God's able. And you need to understand that. That needs to be a conviction. You know what? My God is able, but you've also got to have in a parenthesis, he's able, but he's not obligated. He's able, but he's not, he's not obligated. In other words, what they're saying is whether he gets us out of the fire in a miracle. And we do believe in miracles. I certainly believe in miracles. We've seen them here as a church. Some of you have seen them personally, all right? Miracles are not the norm. That's why they're called miracles. But what they're saying is he's either going to somehow get us out of the fire through a miracle or through the fire. In other words, we're going to burn up, but we're going to go to heaven. And when you think about that, it's similar to what Peter actually says too. When he, he actually addresses people who are in exile, these people are literally exiles. What's an exile? An exile is somebody who is away from their permanent home and they're in a foreign country, they're in a place that they're, that's not their home, but they're also not just a tourist. They're not just visiting for a week or so and trying to find the nearest Starbucks. And they're actually an exile. What's an exile? An exile is like, you know what? I'm in a foreign land. I've got a different value system. I've got a different foundation. I've got a different authority. I've got a different everything in there. I'm not obsessed. And that's what these guys weren't. They weren't obsessed with Babylon. And um, what you need to understand is if, if, if you handle adversity, if you handle adversity a certain way, it is going to be out of step with the culture. Because we hear all the time, we hear all the time, kind of the opposite of this. What's the opposite of this? God is able, but if he doesn't, we're going to have some issues. Every time we open a campus, every time we open a campus, every time we have a large amount of baptisms, we hear this story. And it's, it, the, the names change and the circumstances change, but the story goes something like this, especially man, here in the mountains where a lot of times people grew up in church and they grew up and it's like, you know what? And they, anyway, and here was the story. Somewhere back there in the past, they said, you know what, God, I need you to do this. And this is changes all the time. I need you to heal this, provide this, do this. And when it doesn't happen, like they thought it should happen, they're like, if you're gonna act that way, I'm leaving. That is the opposite of what these people are saying. And by the way, you need to have this before you go into a storm. If you're going to say, you know what, I'm going to kind of deal with my convictions once I get in the storm. As it's been said a hundred times, you're either in a storm right now or you're coming out of a storm or bless God, you're about to go into one. So the question is then, can I say, you know what, God is able, but he's not obligated. I'll give you an example. The reason you can do that is because you're going to march to a different drummer. Um, I go to a particular gym and they're always playing this music and it actually is pretty loud. But my wife gave me these sweet headphones for Father's Day or birthday or something, whatever they are. They're like noise canceling. They're noise canceling. I can put on my playlist and I just, I go after it. I cannot even hear. Every once in a while, if I get lost in the music, I start to kind of sing. Yeah, you've seen people singing when they shouldn't sing, but they're singing anyway and they don't even know they're singing. I'm that guy sometimes. And I'm singing to some, you know, the other day I was listening to Stephen Curtis Chapman dive. All right, raise your hand if anybody remember that. All right, you need to put that on your playlist, all right? I'm not gonna sing it for you, but you need it on your playlist if you're gonna work out. And it's like, I'm diving in and I started singing. And I started looking at these people, kind of looking at them like, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to something different than what you are. 
If you're a Christ follower, when adversity comes, you're going to be marching to a different drummer, listening to a different beat, marching to a different authority. When you know, like my perspective is like, I know you are able. I know you are able. Because you got to understand, this should not shock us. Jesus said, John 16, in the world, you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. I wish we could. We don't get to audit this class. You don't get to. And we don't have time to do a deep dive in here. But again, generally speaking, the Bible kind of gives you about three categories of suffering. Everybody wants to know the why, why, why. And some, there's some answers to that. Uh, sometimes God answers that clearly. Sometimes he doesn't. But generally speaking, you, about, you see about three kinds of suffering. You about three kinds of trial. Number one, you can just kind of call, let's just call it common suffering. Common suffering. Common suffering is just understanding we live in a broken world. That sin and the fall affects everything from cancer to car wrecks. It affects everything. All right. It doesn't work right. It's a broken world and Christians get cancer and non-Christians get cancer. Okay. That's just common suffering. Second one you might just call, let's just call it carnal suffering. Carnal suffering is suffering that I'm going through because I made a stupid decision or I sinned. Okay. If I go to the mall and max out my, my master charge and then I'm like, man, the devil is just, he's, the devil is fighting against me in this finance. That's not the devil, sweetie. All right. That's not the devil. All right. That's you. All right. Just put the credit card down, chop it up, get some accountability, take financial peace, whatever it is. But all right, that's carnal suffering. If you drive 65 and a 35 and you get your license revoked, guess what? All right. That's not persecution. That's not, that's just driving too fast. But in this case, what you see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is what we're just going to call Christian suffering. And that's suffering that you wouldn't have had had you not stood for Jesus. It's suffering you wouldn't have had if you hadn't stood for Christ. Now, this is important. Peter says the same thing. Look over to 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 4, you see the same thing. Peter says, do not be surprised at this fiery ordeal that is among you. But then he says, don't let, don't suffer. And he lists a bunch of stuff. Don't suffer because you're a robber or a thief. But here's what it is. Don't suffer because sometimes Christians are obnoxious and arrogant and rude to our culture. We're just like, I don't care, you know. Look at the signs churches put up sometime. Seriously. Seriously, look at the signs churches put up, right? In we don't really have it here, but I'm just saying, Texas, this is the common one. It was like, you, it's like middle of the summer, and it's like 110 degrees in Houston, something like that. And the sock, I've counted this 50 times. You think this is hot? Wait till hell. Really? Really? You might be going, well, don't you believe in hell? Yes, I believe in hell. What I don't believe in is preaching about hell with laughter and a dry eye. That's what I don't believe in. Because if we actually believed in hell, and we, and, we, and we do, we believe in heaven and hell. I think it was Jonathan Edwards says, don't dare preach about hell with dry eyes. So we talk about Christian suffering. We're not talking about being obnoxious. We're not talking about being rude. We're just talking about standing. And on the flip side, if I could say this, one of my buddies said, he said, listen, if you don't get a bloody nose every once in a while, from bumping into the culture, maybe you've already bowed. Say again, if you don't get a bloody nose every once in a while because you bumped into the wall of this culture, it might be that you heard the music play and you already bowed anyway. Because Jesus said, listen, I mean, Jesus made it super clear. He said, uh, a servant is not above his master, okay? And you're like, well, they love Jesus. A lot of them love Jesus. A lot of them love Jesus. Other people put him on a cross. Paul says this, to some, you're going to be the aroma of life. To others, you're going to be the aroma of death. And so listen, you can be the kindest, most gentle, 
most generous person, and we can be the kindest, most generous church in the history of churches. We can be, but we just got to understand on the front end, that doesn't mean everybody's going to love you. That doesn't mean everybody's going to like us. Now we're going to be kind and gentle and loving and forgiving and all those things. But bottom line is you and I need to be able to say with conviction, God, I know that you are able. So just, just today, be able to say, God, I know that you are able. I know that you are able to heal my cancer. I know that you're able to heal my marriage. I know that you're able to bring my prodigal back. I know you can take my parents and bring them back together. I know you can, but if not, I still worship you. That's conviction. That's conviction. That is conviction. The only way you can do that is honestly, if you know that Jesus actually took the ultimate furnace for you and died on a cross. The only way you can know that, you know what, I'm going through hell right now, but I know Jesus loves me and he's not abandoned me because I can look back at a bloody cross 2000 years ago and he said, you know what, it is finished. And so I hope you can say that. Why don't you bow your heads for a second. Your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Whether it be adversity, identity, whether it be just the exclusivity of the gospel, this, this, uh, this book is, is not about Daniel, even though it has his name. Just like James's book is not about James, it's all about Jesus. It's all about the Son of God, the fourth one in, in the fire. And so uh, just pray right now that God, would you give me convictions, convictions about my identity, convictions about your exclusivity, convictions about how I'm gonna go through adversity so that my convictions are greater because they have to be greater than conformity. Father, thanks for thanks for stories like this that are, seem so ancient, but it is like it's ripped off the front page of our newsfeed. And so our prayer right now is that we, uh, we would have a deep conviction of who we are in Jesus, our identity. God, we'd understand that you are the answer that the world is looking for. And that we would also understand, you know what, when trials come our way, for whatever reason, you're a loving God, you're a good, good dad, whether you will walk through the fire with us or walk in the fire with us, we can be confident. You know what? My God has not forsaken me. My God loves me. I can look at a cross and know that for sure. And that is my conviction. In Jesus' name, amen.